0: You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Okay, if you have your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, this morning, really as we kick off Holy Week, Holy Week is really such a week of preparation. We prepare our hearts for what the significance of of this week means, And so, that's why we put the extra effort into this Holy Week experience. I I want us to come in to the household of faith next Friday night and Sunday morning with hearts that are just ready to receive all the Lord has for us. Holy Week becomes this week of preparation, of slowing down to meditate and really chew on the significance of the Lord's work in our midst. The Lord invading human history. And so I pray that Holy Week will be that for you. It'll be uh, a week of preparation for your heart uh, for next weekend. Amen. I want to uh, share with you from Hebrews chapter 10. We have been in the book of Hebrews for a number of months now, just going through it verse by verse. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the holy love of Jesus. And I actually want to come down to the people (laughs) to share about this because. I want to talk this morning about the holy love of Jesus. And the holiness of God is something that can oftentimes be misconstrued. And I feel like sometimes, especially in church, We present the holiness of God with this false, distant authority, and preachers, teachers feel like they have to shout at people to convince them that God is holy. There's been this brewing conviction in my heart all week long that the holiness of God is going to be punctuated by the authority of Holy Spirit this morning. That's why I come down to where you're at, because I don't need to be up there, distant, shouting at you about the holiness of God, but rather the Spirit of God is gonna descend in this place in such a beautiful way convincing hearts of his otherness. Holiness means set apart, that he is altogether other. And so the spirit of God is the one that that convinces hearts of that reality. I want to talk to you about the holy love of Jesus. This is not a new concept to Hebrews chapter 10. You don't have to turn here because it'll be on the screen, but Hebrews chapter one, this is where it actually started. This whole letter to these believers Hebrews chapter one, it said, long ago in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for, purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is the very place the writer of Hebrews started. That Jesus, this one, the manifestation, the, the perfect demonstration of God himself is holy. He is loving because he himself sacrificially is gonna come and pay the payment for our sins, bring purification for sins, but he is holy, he is altogether other, he is superior to the angels. This is the the creator of the universe, the God-man, the the son of God, Jesus. He is holy, he is love, he is holy, it's a a holy love, and that's where Hebrews Hebrews 10 then goes back to, this holy love of Jesus, this holy love of God. This is a, a really another warning. The writer of Hebrews has given us a few sober warnings. Here's another warning for us to handle rightly the love of God with a sense of holy awe and reverence. The love of God is not to be trampled with or trifled with uh, in a trivial way, in a light way. It's the love of God and it's holy. You can think of it like fire. Fire is beautiful. It's powerful. It's radiant. There's something about fire that kind of captures your attention, right? If you're like, we have little literal social gatherings around a fire. We sit around the fire and we just admire its beauty. But we all know, because we've been raised by good parents, that fire (laughs) is dangerous, right? Fire is dangerous. Kids have to learn that. Every boy, and the man in this place was once a pyro as a boy, and, and then our parents taught us that fire is dangerous. So it is with the love of God. The love of God is awe-inspiring. It's, it's beautiful. It does something to our hearts. We can't look away, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous, and it's not to be played with. I grew up in a firefighter so My dad was a firefighter, so he, he taught us to fear fire in a, in a you know, respectful way, to be respectful of the, the power of fire. So we learn that you know, the, the number one ways fires start in homes, it's not um, spontaneous electrical fires, it's cooking and candles, the two C's, right? cooking and candles. You leave uh, cooking, you the stovetop unattended, or you leave a candle unattended, that's when fires happen. So, so much of it is in our control. There's, there needs to be a, a sense of respect for the power, the danger of fire. This is a picture, and there'll be some of this language here in Hebrews chapter 10, this is, this is the language, the imagery of our walk with the Lord. Yes, he is loving, and so much in our, in our modern church emphasizes the love of God, of which we also do. The love of God is, is our everything. It's what, it's what has won my heart. And it's meant to be the thing that fuels our life with God daily. But we also need these sober warnings of the holiness of God as well. They're, they're not in conflict, and we're gonna see that in this passage. The holiness of God, the love of God, they're not in conflict. They, they, they have a role to play in our life as a believer. I, uh, did uh, recently make it back from our epic adventure through the Grand Canyon. That's right, through the Grand Canyon. I was told some people I was going to the Grand Canyon. They're like, oh, I've been there. No, I'm going into the Grand Canyon, <laughs> like into the belly of the beast, not at the rim. But um, there's only th- this certain route that we took. There's only 37 permits to go on this route that we went the entire year. So. For those four days, we did not see a single other hiker until our last half a mile of these 32 miles. We were out in the boonies. This is in the far eastern side of the Grand Canyon, um, that country. And it was awe-inspiring. It it did something in my heart. Every time you looked up, it was your reward. You just were enamored by the beauty of it. But there was a phrase I repeated, probably more more often than any other phrase, and it was, every step matters, boys. I had my son, I had my nephew, who's also 12. We were taking him on this rite of passage, making them into men, really, by allowing them to taste death. <laughs> <laughs> it was physically the toughest thing I've ever done in my life, and I'll probably never do it again. Um, but as you look up, you're inspired. Like the love of God, you're inspired by it, you're won over by it, but as you look down, you are, you are reminded of the sober reality of the nearness of death. Every step matters, boys. By day four, I did vow to stop saying boys, and I said, every step matters, men. I would say that as we were walking on a, on a ledge, you know, a thousand feet down. Every step matters on loose gravel. Every step matters, every step matters. So it is with our walk with the Lord, not at all meant to, insight, anxiety in your hearts about where you stand with the Lord. But there is a, a, a self-justifying false assurance going on in the, in the Western church today where, where people have to kind of convince themselves that they are saved. There is one that convinces you are you are saved, and it's Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit convinces us of our assurance of salvation. I'll show that to you in just even the, verse, the verses leading up to where we're gonna start This morning, and we we will get into this. Um, Hebrews chapter ten. This is where we left off last time. We were here, Um, starting verse twenty-two. It says, "Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith." So assurance can be yours this morning. I'm not proposing anxiety of your salvation upon your life. That's not what I'm saying. Is that you need to live every day. Am I saved, am I not saved, am I saved, am I not saved? Is God mad at me? You don't have to live that way. But the way to obtain that assurance is not just positive self-talk, not just by playing your favorite little sermonettes on, on repeat on YouTube. No, it's through an encounter with Holy Spirit. Full assurance through true faith, and look at this experience with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's speaking of an experience, an actual experience with Holy Spirit, where Holy Spirit convinces us, we are saved, you are are saved, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're adopted into the family of God. You're a new creation. That is ours in the Lord, that is what's promised to us, it's possible, it's available. Amen. So let's read uh, verse 26. This is the warning for us of the holy love of Jesus. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. There it is. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Every step matters. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living. This is the one we're talking about. This is the holy, loving God that we're talking about. This one who he also says is, later in Hebrews 12, is a consuming fire. So let's break this down. He speaks of sin in in very specific ways this deliberate sin, this very conscious, um, deliberate, rebellious sin against God. He He first says, verse 29, this sort of sin is like trampling underfoot the Son of God. Trampling underfoot the Son of God. It's something very personal. Oftentimes we think of breaking the law of God, which is, you know, sin is breaking the law of God. We think of it as like we're transgressing an impersonal law, like a traffic law. You know, if I, if I break a traffic law, of which I've never, I never have, okay? <laughs> Stop looking at me. No, I, I, I have before, but if we break a traffic law, um, we're, not, we're not transgressing against the mayor or a police, a police officer. We are we're transgressing against an impersonal law. And sometimes we treat sin against God like that, like it's, like it's impersonal, it's very personal. And the, the law of Moses was personal, but there was like mediators. There was, there was Moses as a mediator. So even for, 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 the, for them, you know, he's referencing the law of Moses. The, the punishment for transgressing against the law of Moses was death. So he says, all the more, now that those mediators have been removed, all the more, how much worse the punishment if we deliberately go go continually sinning against God. We're trampling underfoot the son of God. It's that personal. He is our personal savior. And we're saying, we're gonna trample on your sacrifice, Lord. We're gonna trample on your love, your sacrificial love displayed for me. Does that not stop us in our tracks? Does that not kind of send a, a shock wave of sobering reality through us? Oh Lord, let that not be the case for us. We don't continue to deliberately sin against you. Trampling underfoot the Son of God. There was a story that was told of, um, of a prisoner during World War II, during the Holocaust. A man who was um, his house was raided and he was taken away by the Third Reich and he was taken away to a concentration camp and for months he survived in the concentration camp. In fact, stories were told of how valiantly he survived brutal beatings and isolation and torture and, and labor and for months and months and months. Finally, at one point, accidentally, he had heard that his son was the one who actually betrayed him and gave his name up so that the Third Reich would actually know, know where he was and, and, come, and would come and get him. And within 48 hours, the man was dead because that was, a, that was a personal betrayal that crushed him. May sin against the Lord come to those terms for us where it's, it's personal. We're personally sinning against the Lord These are not little things. They're not trivial things. It's personal, and it crushes the heart of God, trampling underfoot the Son of God. That's first. Second, as we profane the blood of the covenant, what does that mean? It means that we we treat something so sacred, like the blood of Jesus, as common. We don't treat it as sacred as as it is. And, you know, we get in trouble because we throw the word holy around a lot, especially in church circles and religious circles. If you grew up religious at all, you, you use the word holy a lot. So we throw it on the front of this week, right? Holy week. What is it that makes it holy? Is it the religious activities? Is it the fact that we come in and in out of a church building? And Is that what makes it holy? Or is what makes it holy Jesus himself? That's what makes it holy. It's the person of Jesus, It's us in our hearts stopping and meditating on the sacredness and the significance of what we're talking about. So sin is treating what's sacred as common. And then he says this, this is the third descriptor of sin, still in verse 29. Outraging the spirit of grace, or you can can call it insulting the Holy Spirit. It's another name for the Holy Spirit. He calls the Spirit of Grace. There's a number of different words for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the New Testament Church would say the Spirit of Jesus. Here we see the Spirit of Grace, the actual uh, applicator of the grace of God on the life of a believer. It's the Spirit of Grace, and so we insult the Spirit of Grace. How do we do that? How do we insult the spirit of grace? Or how is continual, deliberate sin against God an insult to the spirit of grace? It's taking license. It's treating it as, as something little. You know, we, we, have, we, we all need an encounter with the goodness of the grace of God, the free gift of the grace of God. That's what imparts to us true identity, true, true sonship or daughtership, if you're a female in the house, that you are a child of God. It's an encounter with the grace of God. Grace is this, grace is like a prince saying, I'm gonna marry a commoner. I'm gonna marry this commoner, and she's gonna be my bride. It would not be grace for him to say, I'm gonna marry this commoner, but I'm not gonna marry her until she begins to act like royalty. No, grace says, I'm going to marry this commoner, and, and we're, going to, we're going to be one. And in that place, she is going to begin to learn what royal, what royal living is like. She's going to learn the identity of a princess. She's going to rise up into that. That's what, that's what grace is. And so insulting the spirit of grace is squandering that. It's saying, okay, I'm, not, I'm no longer a commoner. No, I'm going to live like a commoner sometimes. I'm just going to completely disregard the extravagant generosity of the prince that came and married me. That came came and plucked me out of my poverty, of my commonness, and called me beautiful. I'm going to squander that. That's insulting the spirit of grace. Are you guys tracking with me? The icing on the cake is, this isn't really even um, one of the three descriptors of sin that I was going to Describe at verse 30, he says, for we know him who said vengeance is mine. Again, there's something very personal about knowing the one who who owns vengeance and judgment over the world. We know him, we say we know him. So that is the sober warning of what sin is, deliberate sin, personal sin against God. I pray that there's a a sobering sense in, in your heart right now Let's continue to read verse 32 because here it's going to kind of pivot. It's going to shift towards the love of God. Again, holiness, his holiness and his love are not in conflict. His holiness is a burning reality, and so so is his love. Let's read verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. It's very similar to what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. Remember your first love. Recall that first love of yours. Remember those former days after you were enlightened. Bring yourself back to the very beginning when you first encountered Jesus. And now look at what he says they were able to endure. This was, not a little, this was not a light, trivial encounter with the goodness of God, this was something that actually made them almost invincible. They endured hard struggle with sufferings. Verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion in those prison, or you had, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I'll just stop there for a second. There's there's three things that he says that we we can endure, and these are these are major things. We can endure this if we we have the love of God fueling us. So the role of of the holiness of God is it shocks us to reality. It shocks us into the reality of his eternal nature, that we are but a vapor, that we are in need of God. The love of God, you see fear can't fuel through difficulty and trial and tribulation. For that we need love. We need the love of God to fuel us through difficulty, through trial, through tribulation, through suffering. We can't do that through, through the fear of God. The fear of God brings us to a place where we need God and it's from there that we encounter his love and that fuels us to be able to endure a whole lot. Firstly, a hard struggle with sufferings. We need a certain theology of suffering. Wednesday night, uh, we had uh, Pastor Ruthie Oberg here with us from Springfield, uh, from the National Ark Arch- the the National AG Archives and Heritage Center. And uh, it was a rich night. And it, uh, the teaching is online if you guys want to go check it out on, on our YouTube page. Um, she just shared testimony after testimony after testimony of the goodness of God, of our heritage. You know, the, the, what we are called the steward as the people of God, as as a church family. Amen, it was, it was awesome. Um, but she did, one of the kind of, Genres of testimonies that she shared was, was about suffering and how we need to impart to the young, younger generation an understanding of how to endure difficulties. She shared this powerful testimony of a uh, missionary to Tibet, to you know, northern region of China and um, the Tibetan mountains of Victor Plymeyer and how he lost both his wife and his son and and how he buried them in a in a hillside, and a year decades later, how that that tragic loss, that horrific suffering, resulted in the establishment of a church, you know, post um, social revolution of of that era in, Ch- in Chinese history, um, and so how the Lord used suffering, but how young people need need to, need to understand uh, to see God rightly in the midst of suffering. Because Jesus said we will also walk through trials and tribulations. I mean, this is so important for us. It's important for us to properly um, be immersed in truth in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of the fire. Trials, tribulations, temptations. This is so important and I, I often see people get this wrong. And it, and it really does hijack their faith. It hijacks their walk with the Lord. I see it time and time again. There is a, this common thread of thought within the Western church that attributes wrongly, they attribute suffering to the Lord. They say, oh, the Lord gave me this. The Lord gave me this sickness, or the Lord gave me this, this issue. And they attribute it to the Lord, they, so they're blaming the Lord. If you think of suffering in the realm of Trials, tribulations, temptations, even sickness. None of of those things come from the Lord, right? right? I mean, these these are all either curse-induced, our own stupidity-induced, or straight from the pit of hell. And so we see Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to take on the enemy. And it's not that he promised us a life free of any of those things, but we know the answer, we know Jesus is the answer. And so time and time again, I hear people espouse, one, something that's very unbiblical, something of which Jesus never espoused. He espoused these things to the enemy. He espoused them to Satan. But two, it's something very inconsistent. It's actually, I, I find that people's theology in regards to their, their suffering uh, gets revealed pretty quickly. People say that sickness comes from God, but then they go and find, try to find medical help. Well, are you fighting against the will of God in your life? I feel like as believers that believe in the that by Jesus' stripes we are healed, we can also go and find medical help because we don't believe it's from the Lord. We believe it's from the enemy. So whatever, whatever means for us to be whole and, and healed that we can do in good conscience and faith, I'm all for it. Amen. Because the, that's the Lord's will for us, for us to experience those things on earth as it is in heaven. That's the Lord's so we need, a, we need a thought, theology of, of suffering. Hard struggle with sufferings, verse 30, or 33. Public, being publicly exposed is the, is the second thing that we're able to endure. When we're, when, our, our, when we're fueled with love, when we're fueled with the love of the Lord, we can be publicly ridiculed, publicly exposed. You can think of that as being canceled by culture. You could be canceled by culture and you could endure that because of the love of the Lord. Because that love of of God is more real to you than people's maligning of you or mocking you. Or being, this is the third one, being associated with partners that are so treated. That, That guilt of association. Oh, you're not one of those, you're not one of those holy rollers, you're not one of those, one of those crazy Christians, are you? One of those freaks that love Jesus so radically. We're hearing testimonies of that within Jesus' school, students being ridiculed for their faith, for their association with people that are devoted, that actually look at the words of Jesus and take them seriously. <laughs> Say, oh, maybe these are actually true words that mean something for my life, Monday through Saturday. And then this last one, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. I've only met a few Christians, just in my mind, there's only a few Christians that I can think that that their properties have been plundered because of their faith. But here were believers that had experienced that and they did it joyfully. That's because they, they were fueled by love, the love of God. Let's keep reading. This is the reward then for This is the reward for enduring with the love of God fueling us. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Scott, you can come forward to the keys. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So there was this confidence in the writer of Hebrews that the ones he was, the ones he was speaking to would not continue deliberately sinning against the Lord. But they would be shocked back to reality and from that place have an encounter with the love of God that would fuel them, where their souls would be truly preserved, that they would be these ones that, whose faith truly stood the test and their reward would be great. Look at a couple of the rewards he, he promises to those of us who persevere, who endure with the love of God fueling us. He says we will have an abiding possession in verse 34. What what, what do you think that could be? It's abiding possession of the reward of the Lord. That is the Holy Spirit himself coming and living with us, this abiding presence. Jesus, or Paul, said that the Holy Spirit is like a down payment or deposit of the promises to come. So this life on earth is not all about just trying to eke it out until we get to heaven. Now we are given many precious promises of this down payment right now of this deposit of what is to come and it's this abiding prep this abiding one as verse 35 or 34 says Also verse 37 we're given this reward of the coming one our coming king he is our hope he is our he is the one of whom we are longing for Our hearts are burning and growing in love for this one we know who is coming again. He is coming, he is returning. He is our coming one and he is our reward. That's how I wanna finish. I wanna finish. Are you guys tracking with this? Is this ministering to your hearts? The holy love of the Lord. I speak as a pastor, as one hopefully tenderly dealing with this, to not crush people. I don't want to crush people with the reality of his holiness, but also his loveliness. I just want to point you to Song of Solomon, chapter eight. This is what it says. This is what the Lord says. Really, the bridegroom himself. So this is like a, These are like the words of Jesus. Obviously, this precedes the life of Jesus, but so many read this as a uh, allegorical picture of the bridegroom, God himself, pursuing his bride. That's the church. And so this is what the bridegroom says to the church, to us. He says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. It's so like a wedding ring, or a Near Eastern culture, to put like a bracelet that says, I, I'm his. I am, I'm giving myself to him. He is, he is mine and I am his. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Allow your heart to be seared by me. Allow, like allow yourself to give yourself completely to me and me alone. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. You see within that a a holy love, this powerful love that fuels us, that's stronger than death itself. That's like the the love of of martyrs, (laughs) that can endure courageously death itself. But he also describes it as a jealous love, a jealous love. This, this love that wants soul devotion, singular devotion. Not a shared love. That sort of jealous love is what we see on Holy Week when Jesus comes into the temple and clears the temple. We were talking about it as a family last night as we just began to look towards Holy Week as a, as a family. And that's a head scratcher for the kids as they, they think about Jesus flipping tables. Like why is Jesus turning tables? That's jealous love. He comes into the house of God. This is this this is the place that hosts the manifest presence of God. And here these people are just making a racket out of it. They're making money off. it. They're cheating people. Their greed is like palpable. That's jealous love. It flash. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. You can all stand in this place. Allow this to wash over you. It's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. This is a love that fuels us even if it meant overcoming death itself. And it flashes like fire. It burns. It's dangerous. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it out if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house he would be utterly despised or really the way it's translated is or the way the original language is he would utterly despise it if he was trying to be paid off for his love he would despise it because it's pure it's it's whole it's wholehearted there's a devotion to it that is the holy love of the lord that the lord is offering to us This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.